and is not bothered by it, and doesn't have any evidences of a converted life. If he still claims to be a Christian, God calls this man a liar. Regardless of what he says, he is lost and in need of salvation. Secondly, there is a man who says that he has no sin, that he's good enough on his own. Well, he's not only telling himself a lie, but he's calling God a liar as well and proving that he is also not in the fellowship. On the other side of the coin is the man who is in fellowship. He understands that it's only through Jesus can he be saved. That Jesus is the propitiation for his sins. We saw that this morning when Robert read verse 1 of chapter 2. He confesses his sin. He claims Christ as his advocate, knowing that only through Christ's blood can he be cleansed and forgiven. And so if we have an attitude that's similar to this third one, if we are saved this morning, John continues to challenge us. So this morning, the, the question that we want to ask from chapter 2 is, do you know that you know him? This comes again from verse 3, this time of chapter 2 rather than chapter 1. But if we look at verse 3 of chapter 2, it says, now by this we know that we know him. By this, and we'll see what the by this means shortly. For those of us who are in Christ, knowing that we know him is a real desire of our heart to have that assurance of faith. The security of salvation is a big issue for Christians, and especially for young believers. How can we know that we are truly saved? And this is one of the purposes of John's letter. We saw last week um, in the, the purposes for jo what John wrote. I'm going to put this one on the screen, I think. These things have I written to you. This is from chapter 5, verse 13 who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the Son of God. So we can know that we know him, and we can know that he knows us as well, and that he is at work in our lives, and that we have eternal life, according to the Scriptures. And the result of this is that it will encourage us in our Christian walk. We will, as it says there, continue to believe, or we will persevere in the faith, if you're unsure of your salvation, it can hinder your walk. If you don't know that you have eternal life, it can cause you to be more concerned for yourself than for others who are in need. So how can we be sure? How do we go about uh, what says there, by this? How do we know these things? Well, we've got five proofs that we want to look at this morning from chapter 2. Five proofs that will show that we do belong to Christ that we are in the fellowship. And the study, hopefully, well, we'll do one of two things. Hopefully it will either encourage us, if we can see that there are these evidences of, of, or proofs of God working in our lives, if we can say, yep, God is definitely working with me in that area, and I can see him working in this area and that area. If we can testify that we, we can see God working, then these will encourage us in our, in our walk, proofs of our salvation. On the other hand, if our lives don't measure up, or if these proofs are not evident in our lives, we should be challenged, and we need to be concerned. Those who fail te these tests should check their conversion to make sure that they will not stand before Christ one day, and he will say, despite what you said, despite even the works you did, I never knew you. So this morning we'll examine ourselves to see what, that our lives match up to our words. We call ourselves a Christian, 
these are some tests to make sure that we can that our lives do match that confession. That we're not like the man from last week who said all the right things, said he was a Christian, but was still lost. To examine ourselves and our walk is a good thing to do. We are encouraged to do this in God's word. 2 Corinthians 13, I'll put that one on the screen as well. Verse 5 says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust you will know that we are not disqualified. Paul is saying here primarily test yourselves, but also that these tests can be used to test others as well. Paul's statement there, I trust you will know that we are not disqualified, is a call for listeners to put him to the test as well. And we can be sure that even if our Christian brothers and sisters aren't putting us to the test, that the unsaved around us, who know that we call ourselves Christians, they certainly are. Galatians 6 says, But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. So we are told to be diligent to test and examine our lives to make sure that we know him and that we are in the faith. Uh, you might have heard this question before. If you were to be on trial as a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? Well, we'll have a look at five proofs this morning that will hopefully uh, be uh, good evidences that you are a Christian, not just in word but also in deed. So the first proof that we want to study together we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Read with me again verse 3. It says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Are we living in obedience to God? Verse 4 says, He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The man who professes to be a Christian but does not obey God and does not keep his commandments He's like the man we looked at last week from chapter 1. He comes to church on Sunday but serves himself the rest of the week. He has little care for the law of God and no desire to do what God says he should be doing. Verse 5 to 6 says the contrasting attitude. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Do we obey what God asks, us, asks of us in the Bible? Do we keep his commandments? One of the obvious answers is, well, it's impossible. Nobody can keep all the commandments of God. And what we'll see this morning is it's talking here about a lifestyle, a desire to walk as he walked and not to sin. In Psalm 119, David says this. He says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And if we look at David, God called David a man after his own heart. But despite this, David still sinned. He couldn't keep that law that he loved so much. We know the story. One day as he walked about on the roof of his house, a woman caught his eye. He saw Bathsheba, another man's wife, and coveted her. And then that sin took hold and led to murder. He certainly wasn't perfect. He was still a man who sinned. But despite his sin, there was still that desire to be obedient to God's commands. And when Nathan shows David the seriousness of his sin, 
we can see the sorrow over his wickedness. 50, Psalm 51 is all about his confession before God, and we see a man who has realized his sin, his transgression of God's commands, and his sorrow is also evident. The prayer is a wonderful example of how we should respond to our sin as well. His words in Psalm 51 says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. In verse 7 he goes on and says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He yearns for his evil desires to be replaced with pure ones. In verse 10 he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He's a man who is broken over breaking God's commandments. So how about us this morning? Are we broken as David was when we sin? Does it grieve us when we break God's commandments? Do we confess our sin and plead with God to have a renewed, clean heart and mind? Do we actively take steps to avoid committing the same sin in the future? If you do these things, it is a, a good indication, a good proof that you are endeavoring to keep God's commands and that you are truly saved. A proof that you know him is that there is a war going on inside you between God's law and the world's view. The holiness of God versus the sinfulness of our own nature. And Paul gives us an insight into this war in Romans 7, and it's on the screen as well. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that, is evil, that evil is present within me, the one who do, wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we see there again a desire to keep the commandments of God, but a realization that we are still sinful. Can you relate to Paul there? Do you wish to do what is right? Do you desire to be holy despite the fact that we constantly sin? If there is no war going on, we need to take stock and to ensure that we are truly saved. For a lack of warfare could mean a lack of conversion. So do we keep his commandments? Do we love his word and strive to keep it? That's the first proof of our salvation. Secondly, the second proof this morning, we know that we love him if we love one another. Look with me at verses 7 through 11. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Of all the commandments that Jesus gave, few were emphasized as much as this one. The true believers, those who would 
call themselves Christians, would truly love each other. Over and over in John's Gospel, we see John recording Jesus' commandments that those who are his disciples should love one another. And we've seen that again in verse 7. And the commandment to love each other is from the beginning, very beginning. It's an old commandment. As early as the first two people, Adam and Eve. As God created Eve and brought her to Adam, love between people, God's creation, was established. Love for God came first. God created Adam to love, to worship him first, and to have a relationship with him. And this is the first and primary love that any human is designed for. But right back there in the Garden of Eden, God established love for each other. So in that way, it's an old commandment, but it's a new commandment too, a new commandment in the revealed Christ. It was clouded, a dark mystery, until Christ came. Now it is clear that we are to love all our brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of race or background. And John is reteaching here what Jesus had commanded in John 13. And this one's on the PowerPoint. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this we will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. That's a real challenge for us. Do we love each other so much that it's a testimony to others? Makes us stop and think, doesn't it? We should love one another so much that when others look at us, they marvel. Not that we would get the glory, but that through that testimony, all would know that we follow Christ and that he would get the glory. John, uh, Jesus says in John 15, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. We looked at joy a little bit last week. If we want joy, we'll only find it in Christ. If we want full joy, we'll find it in Christ and with each other. Jesus continues, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. This is a commandment. This is not something that's optional. And it's often not easy. There are some people we get on really well with, we find it easy to love them. Others, not so much. Some rub us the wrong way. But we should be grateful for those people that, are a little, that require a bit more effort because it's through those relationships that God helps us to get better at loving one another. And it's this unity that testifies of our converted life. So let me be direct for a second. How do we talk about each other behind closed doors? Are our com com comments and conversations always loving? What about other Christians, fellow believers outside the church? How do we speak about them? How we treat each other is a real indication as to our spiritual condition. If we love Christ, we will love his church. If we love the Father, we will love those who have been grafted into the family of God. 
our brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't mean that there will never be disagreements or different points of view, but they should be handled in love. You know, there are many churches in our country today with a dividing line down the center aisle of the church, this side of the church feuding with this side of the church. That just shouldn't be. That's not loving as God and Jesus commanded to love. Verse 10 says, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. If, if love doesn't trump all of our other emotions, it's easy to get into bitterness or resentment or lack of patience with each other and causing us to stumble in sin. Verse 11, But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I've met Christians in the past who profess Christ, but they won't attend any church. The reason they give is that they can't get on with the people in the church. I can't get on with them. They, we just don't see the same things. We don't see eye to eye. So I've given up on church. I'm still a Christian, and I love Jesus, but I just don't want to go to church. don't really want to be involved with other Christians. Well, it's a little bit like a man who would perhaps come up to me and say, I want to be your friend. We can be best mates. We can do everything together. It'll be fantastic. The only thing is, I don't really like your wife. I like you just great, but I don't like Shay. I, I, you know, we can hang out all the time, but just not when she's around. How happy do you think I would be with that friendship? So, you see, I love my wife, and anyone who's going to be my friend has to be a friend of my wife too. It's the same in, uh, with Christ. We've seen in our study of Revelation recently that Jesus is the groom and the church is his bride. He loves the church more than a man could ever love his wife. So how can we have a relationship with Christ but despise his people? The answer to that is we can't. Someone who thinks like this is blinded, as it says in the text there. Because if we're truly converted, we will have a love for each other because Christ loves the church and its people. It's the second proof. The third proof we see is from verses 12 to 17. If you know him, you do not love the world. Verses 12 through 14 address the various stages of a disciple. This is the message for everyone, from a babe in Christ to the most seasoned saint. The message is equally important and challenging. The message is this, do not love the world. It says there in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. So what is the world? Well, the world is those thoughts and attitudes which are opposed to God. We know that Satan is called the prince of this world. One definition says, what makes the world worldly is its persistent rejection of the claims of God in favor of its own values and desires. The world puts itself before God, opposes God. It's those ideas which John is talking about there. This verse 15 tells us plainly that if we love the world, we don't love God. Our hearts can only have one or the other. It's either one or the other deal. We can't have both. And we see there that there are three enticements of the world that we need to watch out for. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I like Matthew Henry's definition of the lust of the flesh. It says, The lust of the flesh is subjectively the humor 
and appetite of indulging fleshly pleasures, and objectively all those things that excite and inflame the pleasures of the flesh. This lust is usually called luxury. And you don't have to go home and throw away all your luxury biscuits, but it's, it's a good perspective to have. You know, those finer things of life which so many people crave, and we do too at times, can consume our time and energies. You might remember the old TV program, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Is that the kind of lives that we desire to spend our time working towards? A lifetime of indulgence and luxury. Do we pursue after that flash house and that sports car, that jet-setting lifestyle, is that what we live for? If we do, we've fallen prey to the enticement of the lust of the flesh. Secondly, there's the lust of the eyes. We see something we don't have and we must have it. See, in Christmas time, our mailboxes are full of flyers and brochures, aren't they? <laughs> Hoping that, they will, that we will see something and desire it and go to the shops and spend some money so they'll make some money. Uh, as you probably know, I'm in advertising, so I've spent a lot of time in my career making things look as good as they can be, even sometimes better than they actually are. Because if, because if we see something that looks good, that appeals to the lust of our eyes, and we want it. Advertising appeals to the eyes, but it's a deception. It's hardly ever as good as the marketing hype. Uh, I've never seen a Big Mac that looks like it does on the posters. <laughs> lust of the eyes. In the Ten Commandments, it's called coveting. It's the Tenth Commandment. It says, you shall not covet. We need to be careful to watch what we look at. Be careful not to be influenced by the lust of our eyes. For in pursuing it, it will draw us away from God. The third thing is pride of life. This is to be a star or to be admired and applauded, to be famous. People devote their whole lives to this pursuit. Some will pursue it with music or politics or business or sport. The recognition is everything. Why is that? Because it feeds the pride, makes people feel superior to everyone else. They end up worshipping themselves rather than God. And these three enticements are not new. They remain unchanged since the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, chapter 3 and verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. In the Garden of Eden, Eve saw looked at that fruit and she saw that it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. Then she saw it was pleasant to the eyes, well, it's the lust of the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. That is the pride of life. We need to question ourselves on this one. What are we living for? Are we trying to obtain positions, status, power, fame, or are we trying to lay up treasure in heaven? Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We see there in verse 17, it says, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You know, as the um, earthquakes happened in Christchurch, one of the things that struck me with that was how some people had worked their entire lives for the homes that they had, the possessions that they had, and they all crumbled away so quickly. 
It's tragic, but it's also a reality check. Nothing lasts. Everything is passing away. We know it's all going to be burned up. Whatever legacy we may leave will only be for a short time, and then it's gone. Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So Matthew 6 says, Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break through and steal. Third proof is that true Christians do not love the world and the things that are in it. Verses 18 to 27 give us the fourth proof. If you know him, the Holy Spirit convicts you of truth and error. You'll see error. If it was the last days, as John wrote about this in those verses there, how much closer we are now. We've seen in the study of Revelation that the Antichrist, with a big A, is coming. But even now there are Antichrists with a small A at work. There are those who have come out of the true church and perverted the gospel. These Christian cults look and sound like the true church, but were never in fellowship, have never truly followed Christ. So how does a Christian spot error? How do you know if a person is a true disciple or a cult member? Verses 22 to 23 give us the answer to that. Actually, let's read, the, let's read that section. Verses 18 to 23. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, and they went out, that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. John is warning here about the spirit of the Antichrist, those spreading a false gospel in the church. If anyone comes preaching another gospel, a gospel that says that Jesus is not the Christ, the Messiah, the third person of the Trinity, God himself in human flesh, they are a liar. That's what John says. When a Jehovah's Witness stands at the door and says that they believe the same as you, on the authority of the scriptures you can say that they are a liar. For they deny the Son as God, and thereby they do not have the Father either. Last week we saw from Ephesians 1, that upon salvation you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. If we are sealed, the Holy Spirit is at work within us. Upon salvation, the Holy Spirit moves into the life of the converted, and suddenly the truths of the gospel that the lost sinner struggled with so much become clear and obvious. Spiritual discernment should be evident in the life of a truly converted person. We mentioned this Gnosticism last week, which was um, going around at the time John wrote this epistle. This was a false, false teaching that had sprung up in the early church. They believed that knowledge was the way to salvation and that it was more important than faith or practice. But knowledge on its own is not enough. We're talking about knowing God, 
And the text doesn't say here we know about God or that we know of God, but that we know God. It's that relationship. And that's only possible through a correct and biblical view of Jesus with nothing else added to it. And this is what a cult makes a cult. The mixing of truth with error. John says here very clear, clearly that the truth does not change. Look at verse 24. Therefore let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also will abide in the Son and in the Father. The salvation message is the same at the end of the first century as it is revealed to the apostles and very first believers in Christ, those first Christians. And it's still the same today. It hasn't changed. And the Holy Spirit gives us discernment, the ability to separate error from truth. He leads us into the truth and the recognition of the promise given to the Christian, that promise of eternal life. Is there in verse 25. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. The fifth and final proof is that if you know him, you abide in him. Verses 28 to 29 says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. It says there we are to walk as Jesus walked. So how did he walk? Well, there's a lot of things we could go to to see how Jesus walked. But in John 11, 41 to 43, we see the relationship that he has with the Father. It says in this passage, Jesus came, um, yeah, so what's happening in this passage is Jesus came to Lazarus' tomb. And they took and then verse 41 of John 11 says, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now he had said these things. He cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Of course, Lazarus was dead and Christ raised him again. But I want to look at the the communion that Jesus had with the Father. It was a, such a familiar relationship and such a familiar communion that he was praying really for the other's benefit, for a testimony to others. And Paul encouraged us to do the same. In Thessalonians 5, he says, Pray without ceasing, and in everything, everything, good or bad, to give thanks. That is this abiding in him. And to abide in him brings us that joy that we talked about last week, despite our circumstances. We also can't leave uh, without mentioning the study of God's word, meditating on the truths of the Bible. In Psalm 119, David said uh, that he meditated on the word all the day. David would have loved to have had the completed word of God as we have it today. Do we appreciate it and meditate on it? Do we spend enough time reading it and surrounding ourselves with it? So there we have five proofs of conversion, five tests that can confirm in our hearts that we know him. If Christ came back today, would we have confidence, as it says there in verse 28, or would we be ashamed? As we look back over these five proofs, do they prove that we are in him? Do they make us encouraged or concerned? 
The converted, born-again life is a life that practices righteousness. Again, that's not perfection, but that's progress. Evidence of God's transforming work in our lives, making us more like Christ. And so this morning, just to close, I want to read a passage from Peter's epistle, and you can turn there if you want to. Second Peter. And it dovetails into what we've been talking about today. Back a few pages. To those who this one, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.